Entrepreneurs Over 40, episode 19 with Colleen Kohanick talking about how she helps women from the typewriter generation start successful online businesses. I think any of us over 40, 50 make great entrepreneurs because just the simple math, we have a lot of decades under our belt of professional experience, life experience, personal experience, and it all just kind of culminates into this perfect storm of what's really needed in entrepreneurship, especially online entrepreneurship. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Our guest today founded The Scrappy Frontier and helps women from the typewriter generation become successful laptop entrepreneurs. She started her first online business after getting sacked from a near three-decade-long corporate career when she was almost 50. The experience of having her own business changed her life forever, so she made it her mission to help other women like her do the same. To quote her, I believe every woman over 50 should have the opportunity to start her own online business so that she can create an amazing next half of her life. She loves to kayak, is a mediocre but dedicated tennis player, and tries her damnedest to stand up on that stand-up paddleboard. Without further ado, Colleen Kohanek. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. I'm glad you're here. Now, could you take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro and bring us up to speed with what's going on in your world today? Absolutely. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I was laid off fairly unceremoniously with 10,000 colleagues in a major kind of industry downturn. And you know, I just I had kind of had enough of the corporate world. I'd had enough what I call death by PowerPoint presentations and conference rooms. And I just decided to start my own online business and thought, how hard can it be? After all, I have all this experience. And of course, on day two, I was like, oh, holy heck, what have I done? Uh, <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. So I kind of jumped in feet first and started an online magazine. And that's where I realized how much I didn't know and how unprepared I was for the online business space. But that's also where I started figuring things out. And I started learning everything and and kind of figured it out and, and made a go of it. In the meantime, a lot of people like friends started saying, how did you do it? Like at 50, Colleen, how do you do that? How do you do that? And then I just... I recognized a huge gap in the market because I started taking a lot of online classes with, you know, some of the big names that teach how to do these things. And I would go in these groups and I'd be like, is anybody here over 50? And they would kind of come out of the woodwork. And so I knew I was on to something that there were a lot of us out there wanting to start online businesses, but we were also a little like, hiding in the shadows, for lack of a better term, and not really wanting to raise our hands and ask those potentially like what I call the, you know, grandma can't work the smartphone millennial eye roll questions, (laughs) you know, so we weren't asking the questions. And so I subsequently started this business, The Scrappy Frontier, where I focused explicitly on helping women from the typewriter generation start their online businesses. Okay. Now, Did you come from an entrepreneurial background at all? Did anyone in your family have their own business or no? Just you. 
No. Well, I shouldn't say no. My mother flipped houses when I was a child long before it was ever on HGTV. So I, I kind of saw that kind of DIY spirit. But no, I don't come from an entrepreneurial background. I came from a very traditional go to high school, go to college, get a good job, stay in that job, retire kind of world. And so I did not have any any entrepreneurial experience or role models for that matter. Okay. Now, what was your first job and how old were you when you started it? My first job ever or my first job as an adult? Let's say first job ever. My first job ever, I was 16 years old and I was a lettuce washer at a restaurant called the Lettuce Leaf Restaurant in St. Louis, where I'm from. And to this day, I will eat a salad. I will not make a salad. It is not happening. (laughs) It was also my first experience in, oh my gosh, I've worked so many hours and I make so much per hour. And then I got that first paycheck and I'm like, where's all my money? (laughs) The government had taken some of it. Now, what was your first adult job? My first adult job right out of university, actually, I studied international business and I speak French. So I actually worked for the Canadian government in St. Louis. They had this tiny little trade office and I helped Canadian companies that wanted to come to export their products to the Midwest. I was the French speaking officer, so to speak, because the other person in the office was from Winnipeg and did not speak a word of French. So that was my first Job, job. <laughs> okay. So you were the Canadian liaison. I, yeah, okay. I'm not Canadian. I'm American, well, but they needed they needed a local, so. Okay. Now, what were you doing at Pearson? Pearson, well, Pearson Education is the world's largest educational publishing company, textbooks. So if you've ever been in school, you've used their textbooks. I did a little bit of everything. I started in sales with them for higher education, where I had a sales territory in the Midwest, calling on universities, selling our textbooks. But the latter part of my career was really, since I had a kind of an international background, international business, I got into an international division and worked with their ESL division and got to travel all over the world, which was very cool. Um, Helping anywhere people wanted to learn English, we had the products. And so Uh, I got to do a lot of traveling there. So I I was in different capacities, sales, marketing, and research. Let's talk about the first business that you started after you got let go from Pearson. Yeah, yeah. So in my previous life, before I had jumped into a regular job, I was a freelance magazine writer for magazines like Better Homes and Gardens, special interest publications, that type of thing. That was the day when they hired outsiders and before these publishing houses brought that in-house and gave it to free interns and stopped paying outside writers. But when I was laid off from my corporate job, fast forward 30 years later, I had always still loved the magazine world. So I decided to jump in and start an online magazine for my little town in Florida. And I thought, how hard can that be? (laughs) So that was my very first online business. And it was also the biggest eye-opening experience, I'll say, because I really came into it thinking, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm in a pretty good spot here. I have like three, almost three decades of experience in marketing. I always tell people on day two of my new business, I was like, holy heck, what the hell have I done? Because I have no idea what I'm doing at all. (laughs) So what were some of your early problems with that? 
It's just a lot of what happens in the online space does not translate necessarily from the on-ground space. You know, marketing being one of them, it's a very different world. Like suddenly you're cast into social media and content production and content marketing and all of these things. When I was corporate, of course, you pick up the phone and you call marketing. You pick up the phone, you call accounting. You pick up the phone, you call. So you work in these narrow roles. And so when you have your own online business, you're suddenly wearing all of the coats. And I think a lot of it is things I thought just would translate. Like I had been in marketing for many years. It is not the same at all when you get into the online space and suddenly you're having to figure out how to market on social media, how to build an email list, build a funnel. What the hell is a funnel? I have one in my kitchen. I was just really clueless about the terminology and and all of that, really. How did you kind of figure it out and how did you move forward with that? I was determined, really determined I was not going back corporate, despite my husband's pleading, like, please go get a regular job. This is going to be crazy. I started jumping into a lot of online classes, having come from the education sector into the space. I've always been a big believer in education. So I jumped into a lot of online classes where I could learn specifically how to do the online marketing, how to do the online sales, how to create an actual product type of thing. I sought out the information and really just dove into that. Okay. Now, were you creating your own content or did you were you soliciting it from people in your community or how did that happen? You know, 100%, I would say for the first uh, three years of my business, I was a total solopreneur doing everything from A to Z myself, with the exception of a few tech things that I spent a weekend trying to build a website and figured I'd rather pull all my hair out. So I contracted to have that done. But then, yeah, I've done everything. I did everything in the very beginning from the content planning, the marketing, the scheduling, the graphic design way more than I should have. I'll say that. And it's not something I teach my audience to do now, but I was kind of a one woman show. Okay. Now with the Townie Life magazine, were you soliciting advertisements from local businesses or were you marketing towards a broader audience? How, how did that work? Yeah. The monetization of my local magazine was really about getting advertisements from the local businesses, of course, because the magazine was hyper, hyper local for a very small town. So I solicited the advertising. And one of like the biggest challenges I realized that I had not thought through or didn't realize would be an issue in the online space is that I then also had to support these small businesses to help them create an online appropriate ad and to you know optimize the image and things that they were not necessarily accustomed to. So it became like a tech process and an ad solicitation process and a copywriting process. And it was, so that was a bit, that was one of the things that surprised me that I had not realized or thought through how manual or how labor intensive the monetization of that product would be. But it was a really good learning lesson. I'll say that. <laughs> For okay. sure. Now, is Townie Life Magazine still active? Or? It is not active. It is not active. So I sold the content to a local blogger following my husband passed away three and a half years ago. And I realized at the time that because it was so hyper local and that business was really going to tie me to one spot 
which also I had realized one of the great things about having an online business is this capacity to be flexible and kind of location independent. So for example, right now I'm traveling, I'm not even home right now and here I can work. And so I did stop that online magazine and I sold the content to a local blogger. So it lives on a little bit. Okay. Now, you know, how are your students finding you for scrappyfrontier.com? Well, I'll say I've come a long way, baby. Since my first day in my online business, I've learned a lot about having a business and promoting a business and launching a product. And I do a little bit of everything now. I do content marketing, of course, on social media. I do advertising on social media. And I've recently hired a PR person who's helping me do a lot of PR. I don't want all of my eggs just in the social media advertising basket because it's very volatile. Mm -hmm. But I find my customers through a free lead magnet that I have, building my email list, advertising, word of mouth, and now a little bit of PR. So spreading it out a bit. Okay. Now your PR person, is that an actual employee or is that a just a contractor that you have? She's a contractor. Yes. Yes. So I contract her for like three month increments because mm-hmm. obviously it takes a bit of time for them to run up and do all of that kind of legwork and whatnot. And so I've actually just started with her next week. I can't announce it for next week that fingers crossed will actually happen and all that good stuff. So I'm excited about that. You definitely have to email me and let me know about that. I will. I, I'll, I'm going to tell the whole world, Greg, okay. <laughs> when it happens. <laughs> awesome. So why do you think that women over 50 make the best entrepreneurs? Oh, how long do you have? (laughs) Well, first of all, I think any of us over 40, 50 make great entrepreneurs because just the simple math, we have a lot of decades under our belt of professional experience, life experience, personal experience, and it all just kind of culminates into this kind of perfect storm of what's really needed in entrepreneurship, especially online entrepreneurship, because as you know, it's not what the marketers tell you online that you can start your business while drinking pina coladas on the beach. It's actually a lot of work and it requires a lot of discipline and persistence. And we have that at our age. We definitely have that. And I also think just this notion of this really deep expertise in a lot of areas. And the funny thing is I find a lot of the women that I talk to, they don't actually believe that they have skills or something they can sell because it's oftentimes something they've done for so long that has become just so a part of who they are that they don't see it as a skill. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, that is amazing. It's an amazing skill you have. So I think just the age, the deep expertise, self-awareness, the persistence, the patience, we know it's not going to be an overnight thing like you hear on TV and on on social media. So I think we just have a lot of that going for us. Okay. Now, how do you help somebody that does not know what area they want to niche down into or even what they would want to offer. I I believe you basically described the curse of knowledge where. Yeah, I can probably talk to somebody for 10 minutes and I can say, you can do this, this, or this. Typically my audience comes to me and they have a general 
inkling of what they would love to do. They're not necessarily sure they can do it, which they can, by the way. But I've had these crazy conversations with women that they're like, well, I've done this for 30 years, but I'm not sure I could sell it. I'm like, what? (laughs) Of course you can. You have this deep expertise. So it's really a matter of just talking to them. And I think the most important thing is getting to what they want to do and not just necessarily what they think they should do. Because a lot of audience, they do somehow want to continue a professional career, like in a solo capacity. But a lot of others are like, you know what? I did that for 30 years. I'm kind of done with it. I want to do something totally different. So we spend a lot of time talking about how even if you're doing something totally different, say school principal for 30 years to like teaching online art classes, so much of what you've already done is going to translate and support this new endeavor anyhow. So there's a lot of that, but it's just, it's a lot of talking and really helping them just uncover what they want to do. Okay. Now, how have you found that it's different when starting one when you're older versus when you're younger? (sighs) Well, there's a lot. (laughs) For starters, we've already had a long time career or we've already put in a a lot of the time, so to speak. We've done the time. We've done the 40, 50, 60 hour weeks. We've done the hustle. We've done all that. And that's not necessarily what we want going forward. We may have done something that we loved or loved and then grew to not love or just loved and then retired. And we're looking for something incredibly specific to fulfill Obviously, we want to make money, but also there's more to it than just a paycheck. There's a lot more to it. So I think that's different for the older sector. A lot of the younger people are still after that, the big money and the empire and all of that good stuff, which, hey, if you want an empire, let's do it. Let's go for it. But the majority of the people I work with, they're not looking for that. They want a really great business with a nice income, doing something they love that is not going to impede their entire lifestyle. And so the business really has to fit in to a lifestyle that's already very well established versus for a younger person where they're still establishing everything, the business can be very different. Another thing that's very different for us that's huge, huge, huge. And this is from my coming out of Pearson, my educational technology background. We are designated as digital immigrants versus younger people who are digital natives. And it's a much bigger deal than I think people realize. And one of the things I always love to talk about is we're from the typewriter generation. That's why I call my audience women from the typewriter generation. And one of the differences, we approach technology differently because when we hit a button in the old days, we had consequences. We didn't get copy, paste, delete, clone, repeat, you know, all of these things. Once you started hitting the buttons on that typewriter, you were committed. And so you had to think it through and you had to plan and you had to organize and all of these things. And so we didn't have the luxury of, oh, just hit delete or go back to the last version or all of those things really deeply subconsciously. We're not willing to just hit the button because we did have consequences and 
interestingly, in technology, when they study like user experience, et cetera, we definitely approach technology differently. We're far less quick to just start hitting the buttons. When people say, oh, just hit whatever, you can't break it. You're like, you sure? I probably can break it, you know, kind of thing. So that is a huge, that's actually a huge roadblock that I have to help my audience get past is this notion of the technology. Fortunately for us now, there's so many softwares and apps and things that make life way easier in that capacity, but we definitely are more cautious with technology. Okay. Now that brings up a question about social media. What about somebody that, you know, is not necessarily on like Facebook or Instagram? Are they out of business or are they, can they move forward? How do you advise uh, going with that? If you want an online business, Mm -hmm. you need to be online. And in my opinion, my personal opinion, you would be a little crazy to not take advantage of the opportunity social media offers because you can reach the entire world with a Facebook ad, you know, and a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, which people are like, oh, that's a lot of money. But I'm like, go back to the olden days when you had to put an ad in every little local newspaper and every circular and on TV. And so it's definitely a love hate relationship with my audience because we're not, I don't care what you had for breakfast. So why are you showing me that on Facebook kind of notion? But the opportunity is there. And so I think it's an important thing to jump into. But I also think it's really important to jump into it in a way that's comfortable for you and not getting caught up in all the trends that you see happening. And my audience and all my students will often be laughing like, do I have to go like on Instagram and dance and point? And I'm like, no, not if you don't want to. Not if, please don't, please don't if you don't want to. But it, I, social media is a huge missed opportunity if you're not going to use it. And of course, paid advertising on social media will get you where you want to go a lot faster than just organic or free content marketing, for sure. For sure. And I think the great thing too is there are a lot of platforms. You know, Facebook isn't the only one. If you're more comfortable on LinkedIn, do LinkedIn. If you're more comfortable on Pinterest, do that. Instagram, do that. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think when we do use social media, we need to be very Uh, intentional about how we use it because you can get sucked into this black hole that becomes a huge time suck for your business if you're not doing it very intentionally. I think it does have to be a choice, but it can be, you know, a harder go in terms of promoting and building a list and an audience without it, but it can certainly be done 100%. I I know a lot of people complain about the platforms and, oh, it's all ads and it's this. I'm like, these are for-profit organizations, folks. They owe you nothing. And their number one goal is to sell ads. Ad revenue is how they make money. And so platforms like LinkedIn are definitely having to adapt to get a much wider, broader audience in there. And to do that, it has to become more personal, so to speak. So. Uh, it's kind of like Pinterest used to be about recipes and things like that. And now it's everything. Yeah. I've always heard that if, if something is free, you are the product. You are Absolutely. what's being sold. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So walk us through how you advise potential new online business owners to start. First of all, I'm a realist. 
in my business. And I have learned to be a realist. I had tried jumping on some trends with smaller products, et cetera. But when I really looked at my audience, it is going to take you the better part of 12 months from the time you have an idea to getting it off the ground and monetizing it because everything takes longer than you think it's going to take in the beginning. Everything, because you just don't realize you don't know what you don't know. And so it's like when you start spring cleaning your house. Well, I'm just going to do this one closet. Well, I did that closet, but now I have to do the dresser. And then it's like the snowball effect of learning. And there's so many gurus out there that are like, hey, build your business in six weeks and off you go. And it's like, no, 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 you won't. You're going to need 12 months at least. So when I'm working with students, I start them with, they first really, really need to know the role of the business in their life. What are your goals? What are the goals? Like not even just obviously revenue goals, of course, but I think at our age, we really need to think through the business in our life. Because as I said earlier, we don't want it to replace our life or become our life. It has to fit into our life. And so we have to figure that part out, the goals and how it's going to, and do you want this business for five years, 10 years, 20 years? People will say, oh, I'm already, you know, 60. How long can I have a business? I'm like, you could have another 30, 40 years ahead of you. So (laughs) how long do you want your business kind of thing? So we really go through goals and I take them through very systematically of starting super simple. You have to start with a very simple product, start selling it quickly Not even obviously to generate cash revenue, but there has to be like the sense of momentum and continuity and moving forward, or we just kind of lose, we just kind of lose the target. And we have to be able to put some systems in place that are going to enable us, because in the beginning, I'll say the first year or two, you're going to be working a lot more than you thought you were going to be working. But it's like that kind of you put that work in up front to get some systems in place so you can move forward. One of the biggest things I teach that I did not do myself is do not, if you can, in any way, shape, size or form, do not try to DIY your entire business. It slows you down. It frustrates you, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, keeping in mind that not everybody just has unlimited funds to outsource this, that, and the other. But I always give this analogy because I find it, and I work with women mostly, so, but I find like for some reason they come into these businesses and they don't want to invest anything because it's not a proven concept yet. But on the other hand, it's by not investing that it takes them then two years to generate the first dime. And They're learning all of these skills they don't necessarily want to know. They don't want to be doing these things long term. I always give the analogy. If you had a brick and mortar store and your air conditioner broke, would you shut it down for three, four months so you can go learn how to fix air conditioners and fix your air conditioner and then come back and then reopen the brick and mortar? No, of course not. So I'm a huge proponent of learn the basics, understand what needs to be happening and outsource as soon as you can for those things that you do not want to do yourself long-term, nor do you want to know how to do long-term. Website coding, technology, setting up automations and some of these crazy things like just you call somebody on Fiverr, they'll have it done in an hour 
versus you spending two months trying to figure it out. So that's where I go with a lot of it. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to ask you where you were going, you know, for your outsourcing. Fiverr, have you used any of the other services? Yeah, there's a lot of services out there. I mean, there's Fiverr, there's Upwork. Of course, if you are using any specific app, for example, you use Zencaster for this podcast. I'm sure Zencaster has a Facebook group, an official user Facebook group. Those are always great resources to go into the Zencaster Facebook group or the Kajabi or whatever product you're using and say, I'm looking for somebody to blah, 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 blah. You'll often get recommendations for people who can help you. For the typical tech stuff, Fiverr is a super easy one. There's inevitably somebody that knows exactly what you need done and can do it instantly. So Fiverr, Upwork, product-specific user groups on social media is a great place to go kind of thing. I also believe in outsourcing. I had a a full-time virtual assistant that I've had who really changed really the you know trajectory of my business. She was able to take a lot off my plate. And I hired her through an organization called onlinejobs.ph. So she was over in the Philippines, which, you know, pros and cons, time difference, da, 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 you know, some language issues, et cetera. But there are all sorts of resources out there and affordable resources to outsource and get some things done faster, for sure. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the people in the Philippines speak better English than I do. Yeah, 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 and it's really just a matter of what you know, really determining. Like, hey, if you're super techie and you love doing that, do that, and then outsource maybe graphic design or content production or whatever that is that you don't love doing, and and just move it forward because the focus really needs to be on your thing, like your actual business and your expertise, and monetizing that. And not necessarily on the logistics and the back end stuff that have to happen, of course, to make your business work online. But you as the expert need to be leveraging your expertise for that. Okay. Now, you mentioned list building earlier. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So list building, a.k.a. building your email list, a.k.a. getting people onto an email list is something um, that needs to happen from day one in any business. People don't understand really how to do that. And they don't understand the significance of building an email list early and continually. Like it needs to be on your job jar all of the time because it's the only communication and access to our customers that we really fully control. Social media, you know, they have their algorithms and they determine what content gets put out there. They get, you know, they determine who it gets put in front of. We don't have control of that. They can shut your account down. They can lock your account, all these things. So getting people into our own sphere and onto an email list is really, this has to be a number one priority. And if you do it right and you have an email list, I know people who are not on social media. I mean, they're on social media, but they've never run an ad and they're doing very, very well simply by having a great email list and nurturing that email list and promoting to that email list as well. Okay. What kind of lead magnets do you recommend? Lead magnets, simple, easy to consume, super helpful, solves one problem. 
Do not write the ebook. Do not write, do not create a 10 hour course. Do not, do not, because that's just going to go into somebody's graveyard of files on their laptop. You want to give your customer a quick win, a quick result, and a quick taste of you. That's really the sole purpose of this email, you know, of a lead magnet. And, and it's a transaction. I tell my audience, like, this is a transaction. It's for free, but they're giving you their email address. So it has to be super valuable. Give them a quick win. Make sure it solves something they want solved, makes their life easier. And they can basically look at it, do it, get the result, kind of fall in love with you. And then it can go in the graveyard. That's what a good lead magnet, in my opinion, should be. Yeah, it's kind of a paradox that we don't really respect free. We hoard free and we'll download it. We'll stick it away in a file and maybe never even go back to it. I think we all have that file folder on our desktop, the graveyard of lead magnets, things I'm going to read, things I'm going to do that never actually happen. I think we all do that. And, you know, for list building as well, I'm also a proponent of the free lead magnet. I'm also a huge proponent of like a very low ticket product or offer, which I also have one of those. And I will say I get more sales conversions from that than I do from the lead magnet. Although, I have not tracked how many people from my free lead magnet to my low ticket offer to my program, which is a higher ticket offer. But getting somebody to open their wallet even just a little bit is definitely going to help you identify your stronger customers, for sure. I think it also helps them because it gives them an impetus to move forward so that they hadn't wasted their money. Exactly, exactly. There's definitely something to be said Uh, For when people get more invested in the product, they're certainly more willing to to dive in and use it and consume it, as you say, versus free. Free Mm -hmm. is free. Now, I think on one of your vlogs, you talked about email list hygiene. Could you expound on that a little bit? Yeah. So the email list hygiene, aka cleaning your list, is something the gurus or experts will tell you to do it every three months, every six months, whatever it is. I think you can get in your own rhythm, but I think it's important to basically keep your list, quote, as clean as possible. And that simply means keeping people on your email list that are actually engaging with your email list. They open your emails, maybe not every time, but sometimes. But a lot of the email softwares have this thing where you can go in and say, find everybody who has not opened one of my emails in 90 days or 180 days, like up to six months. And if somebody hasn't opened an email in that long, it's like time to get them off your list. One, they're not engaging with you. They're not interested currently in what you have. And it hurts your quote open rates and your open rates are important because when more people are opening your email, it's telling all the technical gods that your emails are good. They're not spam. They're interesting. So they're getting delivered more often than not, into somebody's inbox versus spam folder. So there's the technical aspect of it. And if you're paying for an email service provider that has you pay by number of subscribers, of course, you want those subscribers to be good ones, engaged ones, and not folks that just are not opening your email. So cleaning your list is a good thing. Okay. Now, you talked about repurposing content. Can you kind of walk through how you do that? 
I repurpose my content 100 ways to Sunday, Greg. I I have learned to work smarter, not harder. I'll tell you that because content production, as you know, is a lot of work. So like you have your podcast, I do a weekly Facebook Live and that starts with me doing what I call a, a script sheet. It's not a script, it's bullet points, major talking points, the hook, that kind of thing. I go do the Facebook Live The Facebook Live gets downloaded, gets converted into a vlog for my website. I pull bullets out and quotes out for social media content. Then the vlog gets scheduled. All of those pieces I've pulled out for social media content then get scheduled also, either directing people back to the Facebook Live for increased viewership or directing people to my vlog for obviously getting people to my website. And I use a tool that just obviously reschedules and reschedules. Uh, And so I do that. I do that. And I'm working on adding a YouTube channel. YouTube will probably become my primary content production for video, simply because it lives a lot longer, like your podcast. The content lives a lot, lot longer than it does as a Facebook Live Probably what I'll do is create these YouTube videos and then also go do it as a Facebook Live, but it'll be the same content. And again, pulling the little bits and pieces out to create a whole bunch of different small pieces of content that we can continually use and schedule and reschedule in social media. So, now, Do you do this on a specific day? Yes. Yeah, so well, my Facebook Lives are every Tuesday at one o'clock. And in all honesty, since I've lost my VA, some of my content repurposing has suffered a little bit, but we have a whole system. We use a project management tool called Trello, where everything is very systematized, where, um, for example, the Thursday or Friday before, there's an email that goes out that says, hey, Colleen will be doing Facebook Live on Tuesday. This is what it's about, blah, blah, blah. Tuesday morning, hey, Facebook Live today, blah, blah, blah. And then at the next Friday's email for the reminder for next week, it's also like, hey, and if you missed last week's, da, 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 da. So it's kind of this constant directing people to the content and making it easy, kind of clickable, like click here, click here kind of thing. So yeah, it's very systematized. And once you get it systematized, it's it's a lot easier, especially if you can then, that's one of those great things you can outsource and say, here's the Facebook Live sh- the script sheet I do, my VA would take that. She would pull all the bits and pieces. She'd do the email. She would, you know, do all the automations, et cetera. It kind of happened seamlessly behind the scenes and and will again for me soon, hopefully, <laughs> when I find another VA. Yeah. Are you interviewing in process now? or I am not. Well, I'm not for the month of August because I said I'm traveling for the month of August. September 1st, it'll be a number one priority having a VA is definitely an incredible help in terms of a lot of the little details that really help. I will say this, I have noticed engagement in my reach since I have been more sporadic is also more sporadic. And so the more consistent you can be, it's it's so much better for your business. So absolutely, I will have a VA be doing this again. Feel free to not answer or decline to answer, but what is a fair price for a VA for, for doing that? Oh, you know, the sky's the limit. You ask 100 people, you get 100 answers. I had a virtual assistant who was in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Obviously, their pay is tends to be significantly less than ours. So 
For example, I had a full-time VA. She was between $800 and $1,000 per month, full-time, full-time. So that is very, very reasonable for, you know, full-time person who, you know, all of those things. If you, it just depends if you hire a VA and it's also obviously depends on what it is you want them to do. There are very specialized VAs. For example, I have a contractor right now who, a VA, but she's an automation specialist doing some really high tech automations. You're going to pay them a lot more, of course, because it's very highly technical. You can get VAs who are content writers, and so they're expert writers, so you're going to pay them more. So it depends on if you're looking primarily for kind of administrative, process-oriented, systematized tasks that kind of all the instructions are there and they're executing versus those that are taking on more responsibility or you know deeper level activities. It's really just going to depend. Really just going to depend. How long does it take typically for a VA to get up to speed? There'd be a difference, obviously, between the automations and something that's more systematized than with somebody that was trying to write or to generate content in your voice. Well, for example, the virtual assistant I had, I had, you know, talked to people about hiring a VA and they're like, you really need to set aside the time to really train them. You have to give them the information they need to do their job. And so it is incredibly time consuming in the beginning. But I will say for administrative tasks like content repurposing that are very systematized, like this goes out on Friday, this happens. Once you have that process in place, it's transferable. So I have all those trainings now that I can transfer to a new virtual assistant who can just come in and obviously start implementing that process-oriented type of activity. If you want a VA that is going to get up to speed on, say, copy and whatnot, that's a little bit of a longer road because they're not just learning a process. They're learning your voice, your brand parameters, how you talk about things, et cetera, et cetera, that they're able to do things for you with less oversight from, from you yourself. But it is it's always going to take time in the beginning. And I think one of the biggest mistakes people do make with contractors and VAs is they just like hand it over and like, here it is and expect them to do it. Something that's taken you three years how to, you know, to figure out how to do and you just expect them to do it. It definitely is worth the investment in the training and time and to build out those SOPs, the standard operating procedures and the processes and which I do have for some things, not all. It's definitely worth doing. And that's something I'm working on in my business because then you can hand it over. Very detailed process. For like one-off projects for automations and whatnot, like this project I'm working on now, it was pretty straightforward. It was like a two-hour phone call. This is what I need to happen. This is where everything is. Here's access. Here's this. Here's that. And now we're just kind of communicating back and forth on Voxer and email. So it's pretty easy. It's, you know, it's far less time investment up front, but it's more of a one-off kind of project. Okay. Now, speaking of time, how much time do you think that somebody needs to put in at a minimum to ensure success in their business? Great question. In the beginning, I would say as much as time as you possibly can. If that's uh, 40 hours a week, great. If that's 20 hours a week, great. Make it consistent and just know that the more time you can put in in the beginning, 
the quicker you're going to get to the flexibility part. What do they say? Freedom comes from discipline. So the beginning part is a lot harder, but it's one of the things that I definitely talk to my audience about. Like eventually when this business is established and going, how much time do you want to be spending in it? Do you want to be spending 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week, 15 hours a week? I mean, it's whatever you decide it to be, but you have to be able to build in the systems to make that happen. And that's, it's going to take a lot more time up front than you really think it's going to. So if you don't have 40 hours a week, say you only have 20 hours a week, you just have to know your expectation of time. It's going to take you longer to get things up and running. People who are going to try to do this for two hours on the weekend, it's going to, it'll be 2050 <laughs> by the time. It's just, it's, it takes longer than we think it will. Well, what are some of the typical mistakes that you find people make when they're starting out? Some that I've already mentioned, they want to DIY everything. They don't want to invest any money at all in it. And it backfires because let's say you do learn how to set up your website. And guess what? You're not a coder. You're not a designer. So you now have a website that looks like 1982 threw up all over it. It looks amateurish. So then it devalues your business so this notion of not wanting to invest anything in your business is, I think, a, is a real problem. It's not business-minded. It's maybe more hobbyist, and there's a big difference. So trying to DIY everything takes too much time, and you can't be great at everything. So it's going to show for sure. I think another mistake is not managing expectations, actually believing the gurus that you can work from the beach drinking your pina colada and make money while you sleep. It's not going to happen. I mean, eventually it could happen, but it's not going to happen until you put in the work. So you have to come at it with that. It takes a lot. The learning curve is steep. It's really steep. So you have to be in it for the long haul. I see a lot of people get in it. It's like, I've been doing this for three weeks and it's not working. And I'm like, three weeks. And, And so we have to give it a fair shake. We have to give it a fair shake. Another thing I see kind of along the same lines are people who kind of jump from like magic bullet to magic bullet because they're looking for something to grasp onto, which I totally get because that learning curve is steep. But I think if you can settle onto one thing that you want to do, give it six months, give it six months. And even if that idea doesn't work, you've still learned how to do all the things. So, but you have to give that idea a fair shake. That's a huge mistake I see, but definitely the not wanting to uh, invest any money. Another thing I see is not wanting to hire, I mean, outsource for things like that, but also to get help like education or get a coach or something like that, which I don't understand because I I jumped in coming from education because I know that if I can go to an expert who's already done it, I can learn it that much faster. So I think a a big mistake is not investing in a coach or somebody who can help you move faster in your business, for sure, if you're serious about getting your business up and running. Yeah. Now, what are you doing now in 2021 to scale your business as opposed to when you first started out? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I actually have a system in place now, Craig. So (laughs) I have a regular content marketing plan in place. I have a regular list building plan in place. I have this low ticket offer I mentioned, this lower that I use for list building. I run ads to it. And I have 
I had a membership program that I have since closed down and opened into a high ticket program just because it's better. I don't know. I hate the word aligned to what I want to do, but it's like such a buzzword, but it definitely is. And it's bringing in the students that that are definitely in the same place that I am and they want to get their businesses going. So I have August off. I'll be launching again in September with a push with my low ticket offer and a webinar, like an info session that I'll be getting people to and pitching my program on that for sure. And I'll say I pitch all the time. Like you will not see a Facebook live that I do that I don't pitch something at the end. Now, what do you consider the the best business book that you've read? Something that's changed your business that's helped propel it? I, I would say one of the best ones I've read is The One Thing by, is it Gary Keller? And it's really this notion of focus. You have to become known for the one thing. And I think we have to be willing. Uh, that's another mistake. People, I forgot to mention this mistake. We want to be right for everybody and you will never be right for everybody. So we have to focus on the one thing and find our one. I always tell my, my students, you need one person. Who's your one person? And you sell only to that person. I sell to women over 50 from the typewriter generation. Men want to join my group. I'm like, sorry, not for men. Sorry, not for 30-year-old women. Sorry. not. And they're like, but you're losing money. I'm like, no, I'm gaining a much so- more solid audience. So I think that book, The One Thing, was a really good one about focus and becoming known for one thing and focusing on that one thing. Do you have a book in you? I do not have a book, but I would like to write one. Yeah. What would you focus on? I would focus on the myth of the online business world because, you know, something we see a lot of my audience, they, they don't get into the, they don't actually execute on their online business because they don't see themselves there. They see Forbes doing the 30 under 30 and all these, you know, fast company doing like these exposés on these young millennial entrepreneurs When the fact of the matter is, if you're over 50, you're twice as likely to succeed in starting a business than if you're under 25. And so it's kind of like this great myth of the online business world and how the opportunity is ripe for us over 50s. And I think it would probably be a book about that for sure. That aligns right with the reason that I start entrepreneurs over 40. You hear about all the millennials jetting off to their uh, businesses and doing deals over avocado toast. And it's really, it's really not the way it is. It's not the way it is. And I also think there's this whole massive shift right now where society has not caught up to reality. There's an ad on TV now. It could be insurance or something. I don't know what it is, but you're more likely to spend more than half of your life over the age of 50 than you are under it, right? I think that's how it went. But society says you work your job, you retire at 65, then you sit on the front porch and wait for the end. And reality is like, you retire at 65, you could have another good 30 years ahead of you. What are you going to do with that time? Have you saved enough money for living that long and being as healthy I always say that we're half the age that our grandparents were at this age mm-hmm. in terms of health and activity and doing. And 
traveling. I mean, I just took a hip hop class. Like I'm dancing hip hop now. It's like ridiculous. But anyhow, but I think society is still in that you're 65 and you're done. Put him in the corner, wait for the sunset. And it's just not reality. Not reality. Let's get ready to wrap this up. What's the number one piece of advice that you can give for our listeners? If you want to start an online business, do it. I know that doesn't sound like super deep or anything, but stop overthinking it. Jump in. There are resources. Do it. It's certainly like a low, lower barrier to entry. It's not like starting a brick and mortar store for Pete's sake. Like you go on, you, you know, get online and start a business because you definitely have something to offer. You definitely have something to monetize. You cannot be over the age of 40 or 50 and not have something you can do. It's impossible. Softball question. What's the best way for people to check you out and get in touch with you? Oh, easy. Scrappyfrontier.com. Okay. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, Colleen, for being a guest on Entrepreneurs Over 40. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. I appreciate it. This is fun. I love, I love chatting about this topic. My pleasure. Colleen was another great interview, and I learned a lot from her regarding online businesses. Colleen had a lot of corporate experience that she thought would serve her well when starting her first online business, but she quickly found out that it didn't necessarily translate well. She found herself thrust into social media, content production, and content marketing, where in the past she would have relied on a corporate marketing department. Now she had to figure it out herself. She dove into online training early on to supplement her knowledge. She also admitted that she didn't realize that selling ad space to customers was just the beginning. She found herself having to create the ads and optimize the images in the ad space for her customers as well. Colleen thinks that people over 40 make great entrepreneurs based on their depth of professional, personal, and life experiences. By the time we are over 40, we have both discipline and persistence, as well as marketable skills to pass on to others. Colleen notes that Older seasoned individuals are digital immigrants, while the younger crowd are digital natives. Our generation largely grew up with typewriters, where pushing a button had a consequence. Younger generations are used to dealing with technology and are unafraid to push buttons or try new things. Colleen admits she is a realist and doesn't let her students believe in three months' time that they'll be conducting business at the beach while having pina coladas. She estimates that it takes at least 12 months or longer to get traction. Colleen is a big fan of outsourcing technical stuff using Fiverr and also has used a VA in the past to assist with content creation and repurposing. She advises starting to build an email list as soon as possible. That way you aren't beholden to a platform and can have control over communication with your customers. She also preaches and practices email list hygiene, where she periodically purges subscribers who haven't opened an email in 180 days. This boosts her open rate, which helps her emails get delivered better. It also ensures she isn't paying for people that don't want to do business with her. For lead magnets, she recommends that they be simple, easy to consume, and solve one specific problem. She said you don't want to create something too complicated, such as an ebook. Colleen preaches against trying to DIY too much and says, you have to invest in yourself to get further ahead. To learn more, you can check Colleen out at scrappyfrontier.net. 
Now, next week, we'll have on Ramon Ray talking about the celebrity CEO concept. Be sure to hit subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss it or any other episodes. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.